As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, Kristen Barely joins us, and she has an exceptionally important single sentence of courage in her research note. Anytime the index has sold off by more than 25%, the three-year future return has an average of 40%. Kristen, this is off the bounce. How do you know when to step in and go long? It's it's a really, really hard decision, and we can understand why people are naturally nervous given everything that's going on. But I think for those investors that are able to take a long-term view, and three years isn't necessarily a long-term view, the data is is in your favor, and, and time is certainly on your side. So exactly as you said, Tom, the three-year forward return, any time that we've seen the S&P 500 sell off by more than 25%, has always been positive and has averaged a total right. return of 40%. Five years, it's actually 85%. Talk to so us. time is on your side. There are buying opportunities here. Talk to us at Citigroup about the huge advantage you have, and I'm going to pick on Jim Suva today, but there's Horowitz and the rest of them. You've got the security analysts talking day to day to day with the corporations. Now, Moynihan came out at Bank of America, said business is good. J&J &J is giving some form of decent forward guidance. What are you hearing from your research staff about corporations are weathering this moment? Yeah, so I think coming into Q3 earnings, and you were talking about this a little bit earlier, the bar has been revised down and set pretty low. So we could see some of those counter-trend rallies on the back of it. But what are we watching and what are we listening for in earnings? All about the consumer. So obviously, that was a key point in financial earnings. Just listening to, is the consumer strong? Are they continuing to spend? I think there's a nuance here, though. So as we see credit card balances increase, as we're looking at spending patterns, there's a big difference between nominal and real numbers here. And so inflation is impacting our consumers. They are impacting spending patterns. And so inflation benefits top line revenue growth. So we have to get down to those unit numbers and see whether they're spending on the same things and whether they're buying the same quantity. And that's something that can flow through to earnings and put pressure in on Q4 and going into 2023 as well. Kristen, I'm still stuck on the first point here, talking about history uh, and not necessarily predicting the future, but being a guide for perhaps it is a good time to invest just based on how much stocks have gone down. And I do ask, is this time different? I mean, does that give you enough conviction in its own right to go all in with risk if you have a longer time horizon? 
So to be fair here, Lisa, we are actually defensively positioned. We're fully invested, but defensively positioned in this market. We believe that these markets require patience, diversification, and discipline. So we don't want investors all in cash. And so in our portfolios, we're actually overweight fixed income. Ever since we saw, I mean, the 10-year right now at 4%, for investors who are in cash, and you even look out at six-month T-bills yielding close to 4%, we want to basically increase those yields and see opportunities in fixed income, in investment grade, in, in government, in munis, and even in preferreds, where we see some opportunity as opposed to going long financial stocks, getting that yield in preferreds of high single digits is something that's attractive and can combat some of the impacts of inflation. So how much are you going to the long end of the curve? And I go there because a lot of people have been hesitant, saying, yeah, perhaps yields are close to their peak, but not quite yet, because we have seen the whole curve shift up again and again. Again, this depends on the risk appetite of the investor. I would say the sweet spot right now, because we could continue to see some volatility, is probably out about two to five years. And most of our investors are long individual bonds. So that ability to be able to hold. And we have to remember that even just two years ago, we had 40% of the world's government debt was negative yielding. So seeing some of these yields out five years hit mid-single digits and slightly more is an area where we're comfortable and we're comfortable holding and withstanding some of that mark-to-market movement. Yeah, but in a balanced portfolio right now, I think of the great Margie Patel on this, how do you judge between, forget about 60-40 theory, it's all gone down in flames. How do you judge between bonds and equities? Are equities, given your enthusiasm, the new bond? Yeah, so I, I think this is why we're actually pretty balanced here and pretty defensive. So we do think that we are going to see peak rates. We do think that we are going to see peak inflation. But what you're going to see dominate over the next couple of months is volatility. And so you will see these type of counter trend rallies. Like we mentioned, if you are playing that long game, there are certainly opportunities. But if you're someone who's looking right at the short term, what you want to have is that balance because Q4, so Q4 in U.S. equities, going back to 1936, 81 percent of the time has generated positive returns and an average of 4.4 percent. It is the best quarter for U.S. equities of any quarter throughout the year. If we have some surprises in earnings as well, but where do you want to be positioned there? You want to be positioned in dividend growers. You want to be positioned in sectors that will be able to withstand a recession. This is why you hear a lot about healthcare. Healthcare is a sector that's been able to consistently grow yeah. earnings through the past four recessions at a clip of about 8 percent consumer staples is close to 5%. So you're not stretching too much there, but you still have exposure to equities. What about high quality big tech? I mean, we're coming into that season. I think it's October 27 is when we get Apple earnings. What about big tech? So high quality big tech, you were talking about this earlier. We have to look at the international exposure. We have to look at, at the pressure in terms of just how strong the dollar is overall. That being said, in technology, there is a huge difference between profitable tech and unprofitable yep. tech. When we think of unprofitable tech, I like to think of that as a call option on an unknown future. So in long-term secular bull markets and low interest rate environments, that call option on an unknown future is much more palatable than in this type of market condition. So even when I was talking about the dividend growers, these types of companies exist within technology as well. And you could make the argument that a lot of the profitable tech, we're going to be looking for those signs of not only margin compression, but we're also going to be looking for signs of durable demand which of these companies continue to have durable demand, whether that's mm. in hardware or whether that's in software. Kristen, awesome to hear from you, <clears throat> as always. Kristen Piddley there of City Global WAF Management.
Let us continue right now, and we do so and celebrate the holiday season. We begin Thanksgiving with Jerome Schneider, Managing Director, Head of Short-Term Portfolio Management, and Advisor on Thanksgiving Dinner at PIMCO, and here on Bloomberg Surveillance as well. How's your year been? Short-term paper is a place to hide, right? It's busy. It's quite busy, and uh, absolutely, short-term paper is a place to hide. I think the nuances of short-term paper really are what the story is about for 2022 and actually 2023. Mm -hmm. Folks, as you've highlighted before, is cash is, is not necessarily as democratic as people would like to think. And while cash is king, the crown jewel of how you want to think about it is really more nuanced than that. Yes, bank deposits are, in some cases, right. slowly moving higher. <clears throat> T-bills may offer some attraction, but the reality is they're trading actually quite rich, in some cases 30 to 50 basis points through benchmark rates, meaning what the Fed is expected to be at. So there is other value if you actually want to be more appropriately right. uh, highlighting and thinking where interest rates should be headed based upon Fed expectations. In the PIMCO meeting that you have out there, the 10A meeting, whatever the legendary meeting is, what do you say about the short-term space and dollar illiquidity worldwide? There was no other theme well, at IMF. Well, there's, there's a reality of what we're thinking about is that we are facing a change where people need to digest the changing cost of capital. And the notion of liquidity is one that has been more prolific. People are concerned about liquidity. It's been sort of a, a call word, if you will. But it means very different things to very different people. And I think that's the consequence of when we want to think about the marketplace. You have macroeconomic liquidity. You have liquidity concerns driven to quantitative tightening. You have haircut concerns and margin requirement concerns, which we've clearly seen within England. And more importantly, as the as the economy progresses to more of a state of concerns about growth, then we're going to see other tightening ratchets of illiquidity and haircuts. Those are the liquidity facets we really need to be paying attention to. So from a starting place at PIMCO and everybody else, we have relatively judicious high amounts of liquidity, preventative liquidity, defensive liquidity. But the key then comes into how do you use it? How do you think about it opportunistically, given the uncertain outcome, given the growth environment, given the slow GDP, but perhaps shallow but longer recession that sure. we think at PIMCO? And then ultimately, how do we then extrapolate that to value in the future? So it's all about really how does liquidity translate to volatility within the marketplace and how do investors absorb that volatility properly? The problem for a lot of people in the market right now, Jerome, as you know, is when you expect there to be liquidity in an asset class where there should be liquidity, and then there is not. Right. Can you talk to us about what's happening in the Treasury market? We know that last week the Treasury reached out to a group of individuals. The Treasury has this connection with a group of individuals in the market they speak to. They try and get feedback about what's going on. One thing they asked about was whether they should buy back certain securities to improve the liquidity and the functioning of the market. What do you say back to that? Yeah, John, there's, there's, this has actually been top of mind, not just simply over the past few months. And we published a paper at PINCO sort of highlighting this, suggesting some all-to-all -all trading and actually elicited some pretty positive, constructive dialogue within the marketplace. That's a function aspect of where we want to think about where the market and how the market is digesting actual functional high quality assets. It is a concern, but it's also an opportunity for investors. Those investors, they can really think about how to maneuver around these higher cost of capital and more importantly, the opportunity sets because of the wider bid offers. So what I would suggest is, yes, it's a transformation from what we've been used to over the past one to two decades. 
And it is a concern when you think about some of the curtailments that you have from a regulatory and sort of a functional framework. But as an active manager, you're going to incorporate it and find opportunities to incorporate it. And it just might simply mean that, yes, there's more volatility, but you're going to have to be more convicted and have longer holding periods. So there are two different things here. There's one about the Treasury possibly buying back debt. And then there's investors acting as liquidity providers and stepping in in the all-to-all and disintermediating banks. Is that what you're saying, that if the banks were not necessarily the ones that were there and you had a platform where you could really make markets in real time, that that would possibly be a more effective way of providing liquidity to this market? Well, I think liquidity in general isn't necessarily a democratic process. And so when you think about it, there's different layers of liquidity within the marketplace. And we're suggesting is that you have more degrees of freedom then maybe perhaps that's better for the market liquidity as you go forward. It doesn't necessarily mean that people have a view or a more constructive view or a less constructive view of where the market is headed. The market is the market. But when we think about it, that broader base landscape is where we're really trying to head in that regard. Meanwhile, the Bank of America Fund Manager Survey showed uh, that investors are holding the highest cash piles going back to 2001. And we hear that from everyone. You know, cash is your friend. You want to be liquid. You want to be nimble. Is your experience that it's just flooding in that people are coming to you and basically just saying, please give us anything you can to give us a sense of what our income could be, how to be safe, and you're sort of overwhelmed or is it not really the case? You know what the problem is, Lisa, is that people are focused on looking and driving in the rearview mirror. And the reality is, is that as you're thinking about where it is to come, they're so focused on what has happened in the past one to two quarters, they don't necessarily have the ability to look out the front window and see the opportunity set that perhaps that cash and more importantly, fixed income provides in this landscape. One of the concerns that you have is obviously growth. One of the concerns you have is sort of does the risk parity element of having interest rate exposure duration offset some credit risk taking and broader risk taking within equity markets. And maybe those correlations don't hold at this moment. But if they do reemerge, then there's some different opportunity sets. And the higher the higher rate environment we're finding in right now is actually the setting of the table of something that is very different than we had for the past few years and decade. Let's quite honestly. That, so, right. so don't keep looking in the rearview mirror ultimately. In that rearview mirror is not just two quarters, it's a decade's worth of zero rates, yes. negative rates, yes. QE. When I hear you talk and I get the sense that you think this is something that's going to hang around, well, not just one year, 12 months, that this is something we need to adjust it, to. It's going to be unlikely that we get back to a zero rate level for, you know, on a flat yield curve like we've been witnessing as a, a two-year note at 25 basis points seems to be something that's out in the past. But what I do think is going to happen is that when you see where we are, at least for the next one to two years, a higher inflationary print when you have PCE that might level out at about 3.5% instead of closer to 2%, that means front-end rates are mm. probably going to be in this vicinity for some period of time. And investors should right. get comfortable with that in that notion. It obviously, it has on- onset effects of what happens with equity markets, risk-taking, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, this is a higher rate level, and investors need to think about the value of fixed income in this environment, not just because of higher rates, but because of its complementary effects to total portfolio allocations. Well, that's where I wanted to go. To, to, to short-term guy, let's go wicked long-term. <laughs> Does the actuarial assumption shift? We've been going from 8% to 6%. Good news in terms of cash imputed into plans. Are we going the other way now where we're going to have a higher actuarial assumption of our retirement plans? Yeah, Tom. Ultimately, investors are going to look for different sources of how to produce total return. What we've focused on is declining interest rates happened over the previous three decades with simply that lower rates spurred on higher capital appreciation opportunities. That calculus has fundamentally changed. And so the total return composition is not just on capital appreciation, it's on the ability to carry and earn income, whether it's through dividend income or income from bonds in the traditional sense. And that is 
quite honestly, one of the things that uh, investors who are maybe new to the markets over the past decade or so need to be thinking about. So a lot of factors are putting us back into a more traditional 1970s, 80s, and early 90s mindset mm -hmm. of not only how to trade markets yeah. from a liquidity perspective, but also how to think about constructing portfolios. When was the last time we sat around a table together? Isn't this it's nice? It's been a while. It's lovely. <laughs> it's, good. it's good to see you. There's more and more. In town for the Yankees, TK. No, no, no. Got just, plenty just of plenty of events. It just, York, has to, it just so City. happens that the Yankees are playing that he's in town. Of Total course. coincidence. I'm, okay. I'm sorry to accuse you for being in town for the Yankees. No, I'm, I'm here to give uh, turkey advice. Of course. <laughs> Jerome Schneider of Pimco. Great to see you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's talk about the rate market. We can talk about QT and let's talk about sterling. We'll do that with Kit Jukes, chief FX strategist at SockGen. Kit, help me out here. So on a report that QT gets delayed, sterling climbs to session highs through 114. On the pushback from the Bank of England, sterling falls to session lows. Kit, am I to believe that QT is somehow sterling negative and delaying QT is somehow sterling positive? Based on the price action, that's what it's telling me. What did you make of that? Um, I think the price action tells you that by the time you've had two conflicting messages within one morning, the second one coming at the start of a guilt auction, um, everybody's looking at the UK and saying, please, 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 can you get the uh, the messaging right to us? We are all confused. Uh, because, you know, what, what we need for the currency, uh, what we need for the market is for the volatility to go away, for everything to calm down uh, and to, uh, to put this kind of period of, of massive uncertainty behind us. So uh, contradictory reports just don't help in, in that regard at this point in time. I mean, the most confusing thing of all next would be um, that although they're not planning on delaying the start of QT, uh, if they go on and do it anyway because of the volatility in the gilt market at some point in the next couple of weeks, uh, and then we'll then we'll yeah. be full circle. Kid, uh, I, so, I know, thought your maybe note, some people should say less. I thought your note today was really lovely and it was very indeterminate. It was like we need to wait, we need to wait. Now what? What do you do with a strong dollar reality, given the unsettledness of your note? Can you go the other way and call finally weak dollar, or do you just sit here? I, I wish I could, but I, that's why I think that what we do is we get stuck with less volatility. I mean, the, you know, the, the, there are two problems with, with looking for a weak dollar. One is you just have to embrace the idea that um, we're going to have the softest of soft landings in the United States and everything's going to be fine and lovely and the equity bulls are right. Uh, and the difficulty with that is if the economy doesn't slow, they'll, they'll hike more, not less. Uh, and we're going to get a very, very inverted curve by Christmas at this rate. So that, that's the first difficulty. And the second one, frankly, is still Russia, Ukraine, um, the whole problem that we have out there, that how, how do I turn around in Europe and say, I want to sell the dollar? Shall I, buy, shall I buy the pound? Shall I buy the euro? 
when uh, I'm getting newspaper reports about, uh, yeah, if we have cold days in the middle of winter in January, February, you're going to have the lights all going to go out. Um, that, that, you know, oh, have we priced that in properly yet? I'm not sure. So it, it, it could, we could get stuck here. I guess that's the, that, that, that's the end conclusion of that until we get the next trend. And the next trend might be kicked off by the next leg up in Tanyanoyo. Just quickly, Jordan Rochester was on yesterday of Namira, and he was talking about how, yes, central banks are important, but really it's about the economic trajectory. And right now, more of an austerity kind of approach from fiscal policymakers in the UK will lead to a deeper recession. And that means a more negative outcome for the pound. Is that the kind of uh, rationale that you think is what you should be following? How much is the economy really the main driver here? I think the economy becomes one once we start focusing on the politics because it's not as important. And the economy is heading into a recession that could last a long time. And, and yes, to the extent that, you know, that there's a sort of a wisdom out there that says what you need to do when your financial position as a country, when your fiscal position is poor, is tighten fiscal policy really aggressively and, uh, you know, in the hope that that will improve it as opposed to get yourself any chance of growing out of your fiscal problems, then, then we start looking more like Japan every second. And, and so, uh, you know, that, that's pretty scary for a country like the UK with a current account deficit uh, and, and for sterling. So, yeah, it's not a great picture. Um, I think the only piece about sterling right now is, you know, we, we're priced for a lot of bad news. Sterling can be held down here. I don't know how much further it can fall unless something really negative happens. What I still can't see is the policies that would let the economy do better than expected, uh, and people start looking around and saying, hey, you know, this thing is a cheap asset that I want to buy. Hey, Kit, final question. Can Arsenal win the league? No. Just flat out no. <laughs> are, you, are you saying no because you're worried that if you say yes, it won't happen? Uh, I'm saying no because Manchester City are the best side in that league, whatever happened at the weekend. Kit Juice is such Jen. Thank you. We need to get an update on entertainment. Always we can do this with Craig Moffat and Michael Nathanson of Moffat Nathanson, a division of SVB. And we're thrilled that the Welkoff Nathanson could join us uh, this morning. Michael, I'm going to digress here to when the thud you heard was me falling off my chair is Mr. Murdoch wants to piece Humpty Dumpty back together again. What did you think when you saw young Murdoch said, let's bring it back together again? Yeah, that was not the uh, the playbook we wanted to see. We have a buy on Fox. Robert Fishman covers it. Our view on Fox is it's the it's a pure play on sports and news, which we think is the glue to the bundle. And they're not wasting their money fighting streaming wars, right? Tom, it's a very clean story. We thought at some point they would sell Fox to private equity or another yeah. another, another media company. So here, I think what the narrative is from here is the company the, the company is going to need approval from the majority of the minorities. And I don't think that's coming because I think our the clients we talk to who own Fox are not happy with this decision. And we'll see, we'll see what comes next. There's probably a second, a second leg of the story, right? They'll put them together right. and then do something with those assets, which we're waiting to hear more from the Murdochs of what's their intention after they combine this these two companies just because of the calendar i've got to go to netflix they're teetering on three legs some would even say a two-legged table as well what will you listen for from netflix today okay so they're introducing an advertising tier for 6.99 yeah. in the fourth quarter what i want to hear is why are they so confident that there won't be a spin down as they say in the uk from a higher price point 
down to this new tier, which would be very dilutive in the near term for, for, for revenue per users. So I, I like to hear why they're so confident that this will not be in the near term, a very dilutive strategy, right? That's to us, you know, given the, the drop, their dropping price, and as as we talked earlier, you know they don't have the same grip on users as they once did. I think there's a risk that there's a spin down here. Michael, how much are you looking at the potential for some of these media darlings, the online streaming services, certainly during the pandemic at least, being acquired by the likes of Walmart, being acquired by the likes of Apple? And this has been something increasingly rumored about. Yeah, um, we're the challenge we have is some of these companies are family. Held. You know, Tom mentioned the, the Murdochs. The Redstones control Paramount Global. NBCU is controlled by the Roberts family. There has to be capitulation, which we don't see yet, right? Everyone thinks they have the right strategy of bleeding linear and investing in streaming. At some point, we think in the next 12 months, 24 months, there will be capitulation. Companies will realize that they have the wrong strategy. They don't have the balance sheet to make this pivot. They're under, undersized. And maybe there'll be some M&A, but I, you know, that's not our working thesis right now, right? There has to be some level of realization that these strategies are just not going to work, right? Like you have four or five large players in streaming with much better positions. So the people who are lagging have to have to get out. And I'm not sure they're ready to do that right now. So who do you think the ones that need to get out actually are? Well, well you would say that Peacock, Paramount, there has to be some combination That'd be Comcast and Paramount Global that they've done well within the U.S., but they're really not they're not going to scale to that higher level with a profitable business model. They're going to need to find some way to combine combine streaming assets. We'll see what happens to Warner's WBD. Yeah. Um, You know, like the market is really worried about the debt load there. There's true asset value in that company, but the debt load is scaring people away. So you would say that those three companies need to figure out some path forward, maybe consolidation to get some some more scale. Michael, do you think that Disney's making the cable package, the cable bundle all over again with Hulu? Is that where that's going? They're trying to, right? So they have Disney Plus, Hulu Plus, Hulu and ESPN Plus. You know, John, our you know, our concern is the cable bundle is the best product we've ever seen from a from a an economic standpoint, right? Everyone's paying the same amount of money. No one's watching the same amount of channels. You have to be very, very careful not to further disrupt that bundle. I think Disney thinks long-term, we have the goods that we can replicate the the product, but the economics of that new offering are going to be so below the economics of what we're coming from. So I think you have to be really, really careful, but they have the pieces in place. I'm just hoping that the speed to change is slower by them than maybe what they want to do. Michael, we didn't have you on for all this chit-chat. Yankees Cleveland, cut to the chase. Well, Tom, the guy behind me, I wish he was pitching tonight, right? Or today. I'm worried about I'm worried about the bullpen as as everyone is, right? It's not the bullpen of number 42 behind me. You satisfied with that response? I am on radio. It was great. Okay, good. Mr. Rivera behind uh just to oh, clarify. <laughs> as well. Just uh Hey, Michael, thank you. Michael Nathanson of Moffat Nathanson. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations 
and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.